Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm Greg Masters, your host, known to some as Two Held Guru on Twitter and the publisher of the blog ACOWatch.com. This is the sixth broadcast in the weekly series ACO Watch, a midweek review where we monitor, analyze, and discuss the emerging the emergence of market entrants as accountable care organizations, the expected regulatory guidance, and ongoing industry buzz. Joining me today as co-host of this ACO 101, a physician primer, is Dr. Mark Brown, a principal in the healthcare consulting practice of PYA with offices in Atlanta, Austin, Knoxville, and Tampa Bay. Dr. Brown is an experienced physician executive, consultant, medical blogger, and might I add, health tweet in very good standing on Twitter under the handle of at consultdoc. Dr. Brown's interests are in bridging the healthcare quality and finance divide. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely glad you could join us. As you know, this broadcast was originally scheduled for last week, and you had an unfortunate uh, family event, which turned out okay, which precluded you from participating. So I went ahead and winged it just, you know, just nonetheless. So uh, at any rate, this is this time they get you uh, in the flesh for real. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did just fine, Greg, but I'm glad I could be here this week. Okay. And the other thing I'll say is, um, you know, social media podcasting, whether freemium or premium platforms are always interesting because, uh, for the most part, the backbone is typically leveraged through Skype, and um, uh, Skype had a massive um, system problem not too long ago. It took uh, a lot of the regions around the world down, which was kind of interesting. And we've had a couple of challenges today, so hopefully we'll have an uneventful broadcast. So today we want to talk about what we've called a Physician 101 Primer on ACOs, and Dr. Brown is co-hosting me today, and uh, the reason he is uh, uh, selected for that post, if you will, is uh, Mark was intimately involved in putting together an um, um, Academy of uh, um, Association of Physician Executives, ACPE. American College of Physician Executives. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> you didn't know there was going to be a quiz. <laughs> You know, I, I, I do know that. So at any rate, <laughs> a, a great symposium, which he generously supplied the link to, which we have tweeted and published elsewhere, and it does a recap. Um, and Dr. Elliot Fisher, who's sort of the overseer of some of these demos, uh, ACO demos, was the sort of MC for the event. So we've got kind of a framework today on this primer, and we're going to try and touch on as much as much as we possibly can. But... Take it where you want to take it, Mark. We kind of have an outline about, you know, what are ACOs, how do you spot them, who's involved, so on and so forth. You know the general framework here, but um, where do you want to start? Well, let me start with a little bit of what I'm seeing out there and sort of in the weeds, Greg, if you will. Uh, as you mentioned, I work in the world of healthcare consulting, and I get the opportunity to speak to many physicians and hospital and health system administrators across the country, uh, many of whom are either interested in or somewhere along the journey to becoming some sort of new care model, be it an accountable care organization, a bundled payment, a primary care medical home. Everybody is sort of looking for the uh, holy grail, if you will. Uh, accountable care organizations today seem to have 
uh, not the entire buzz, but a majority of the buzz, in that at least everybody wants to know what they are and how they might get to what one might look like in their particular organization. And although there's a lot of theory floating around out there in the demo projects, some of which we'll talk about later in this uh, in our half hour, there's a lot of uh, concern, maybe a too strong of a word, but uh, in some camps probably not too strong, that how is this actually going to work for me? What's it going to look like in real life and how do I do this and at the same time continue to do what I've been doing in the world of fee-for-service all along? I had one physician share with me that he said, you mean to tell me, Mark, I've got to figure out how to do this sort of pseudo-capitated thing at the same time managing my fee-for-service practice. And I said, yeah, that's right, Jack, you do. And he said, well, it kind of feels like having one foot in each canoe, and I don't really like where I might land on this. And and I think that's a great visual representation of where a lot of physicians feel like they might be headed. Most organizations have optimized themselves for our existing fee-for-service environment. Can I, can I connect the dot there, beheaded, and, ca- beheaded and capitation? The <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm full of visual parts. <laughs> very good, very, very good, Greg. I'm okay. impressed. But, uh, but anyway, there's there's this sort of uh, lump in the collective throat of the industry of okay, we need no, we need to get there. We're not sure exactly what it looks like, and although we've got some vague guidance, what might it look like for me? And that's fortunately for me, what I get to spend a large part of my time doing is helping people take what little we do know. And what more is coming out and saying, okay, how do we get ahead of this curve? How do we how do we prepare for what we think is coming, and what are the key things we need to do, regardless of what the endpoint might be? So, how are you now, uh, with given that pretty much everybody, unless you're an integrated delivery system, already in alignment with these bundled and capitated payment systems? How do you guide them where they've got uh, a foot in each canoe, perhaps angling in different directions? Well, some of it. And this is probably a good place to insert some definitional. You grow up. An accountable care organization, I'm not really sure what that means. Could you tell me? And so I think we need to have some sort of understanding of what an accountable care organization might look like. And I say might on purpose. I mean, it's sort of cliche, but I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard it. You know, accountable care organizations are kind of like leprechauns. A lot of people believe in them, but no one's ever really seen one. And there there are a lot of suppositions out there as to what it ultimately like, might look like. But there are some key things, some key drivers that I think folks need to be aware of, you know, in the in the world of working on this as a primer today and, and hopefully some folks might want to know what, what are the key things I've got to do. So so so, let, so let's start there. So what is an accountable care organization? How are they defined and why are we talking about them right now? Well, the the definition that I like the best that I found in, in my reading about this is is Elliot Fisher's definition. And as you know, Dr. Fisher was one of the prime authors of of the Extended Hospital Medical Staff, the paper that sort of spurred a lot of this talk about accountable care organizations years ago. And, and he talks about better health, better care, and lower costs. And in a nutshell, I think that's everybody's goal, although that is somewhat altruistic and and we may not get all the way there, it's sort of the journey from an uncoordinated sick care system to a coordinated health care system. And the ACO is sort of the vehicle, or one of the primary vehicles anyway, that the industry is trying to to ride in. But 
in a more pragmatic way, um, an ACO basically is an organization of healthcare providers that will agree to be accountable for the quality, cost, and overall care of, of the beneficiaries and patients within that organization. And that's kind of a, a paraphrase of Medicare's or CMS's uh, definition. Um, what that might mean and what it might look like, the similarities sort of end there between Dr. Fisher and some of what the law is. Although, in speaking with him, in fairness, he felt like the law did represent a large portion of the direction he thought ACOs may end up going. And he and his organization through uh, Brookings Dartmouth are, are headed. But there are some very specific definitional pieces within the law that uh, I'll get to in just a second. But in summary, sort of integration and accountability for a defined population of patients. And, and there are a couple of things that you need to have under the law to be an accountable care organization, assuming the law stays as it, as it is. And I suppose that's a topic for another blog talk radio show, isn't it, Craig? Okay. But, um, the, the law requires really very few things. It requires a three-year commitment, a legal structure to accept payment, you have to have sufficient primary care providers. As, as we all know, accountable care organizations have their crux built around primary care and management of chronic disease and the avoidance of unnecessary care, not dissimilar to some of our journeys down the capitation route uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, but there are some things that I think set it apart. The law does define 5,000 lives or 5,000 members that have to be included in an ACO. Uh, there's a lot of debate as to whether that's enough to really be able to spread the risk around from a financial perspective. But anyway, that, that is what the law requires as a minimum. Most uh, folks, myself included, don't believe 5,000 folks in an accountable care organization is going to be an adequate number of patients to make one of these things work. Um, a big issue is assignment or attribution, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, I think. Um, the way that the law has set it up, they basically have said the secretary will determine a method to which to assign patients to an ACO, likely based on their primary care utilization from a previous period of time, probably the previous year, although that's not well defined. And then there are components in there, of course, on quality. We can't leave that out. It, the law only requires that you report on quality and cost, although the at-risk portion of an accountable care organization is based on shared savings around improvements in quality and cost simultaneously, not one without the other. Uh, an interesting component that I don't think everyone is probably really aware of is that the law defines accountable care organizations to still be a fee-for-service mechanism. Part A and Part B don't go away under Medicare, as defined by the law. Uh, there is a shared savings component layered on top of it, but this is not a capitated program under the law. Now, when you look at Dr. Fisher and, and uh, the Accountable Care Organization Learning Network and some of the work they're doing, they talk about moving towards a partial, partially capitated model and an increased shared risk model, which I think is likely where this may head. But it's not capitation right out of the gate, which is different than what we talked about with you know the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, so that's sort of a, a, a not quite so short version of the definition of what CMS says an accountable care organization will have to be under the law. So if I'm a, should I be paying attention if I'm an internist, perhaps oncologist, and, you know, other specialties can ignore this, or does this have a broader implications for, for medical practice than just the traditional Medicare suppliers? I think that's a great, great question. I think that everyone needs to be paying attention to this because the law is written in such a way that it's 
Uh, I read an article that you actually gave me, Greg. It's evolutionary, not revolutionary. Uh, and and that's by design. Uh, the folks that I've spoke to at CMS uh, have have said to me uh, they're looking for private industry to fill the gaps, if you will, to have some demonstration projects and to see how some of these things might work, an ACO, a bundled payment model, a primary care medical home, and uh, to come up with some of the solutions before the implementation deadlines that are outlined in the law. So Blue Cross Blue Shield has uh, pilot projects going on. Obviously, the Brookings Dartmouth Institute, uh, Dr. Fisher and his team, have a large pilot project uh, ongoing with Carilion Clinic, uh, Norton Healthcare, Tucson Medical Center, and several medical groups and IPAs out in your neck of the woods, Greg, in California, with uh, Monarch and Healthcare, or Monarch Healthcare and Healthcare Partners, excuse me. So those that that is probably the biggest uh, demonstration project. But there are other sort of peripheral projects going on with uh, Alice Gosfield and her team with Robert Wood Johnson and the Prometheus Payment Project. Uh, one of their biggest sites is up in Grand Rapids, and they've got some sites in Chicago and Boston uh, as well. So there are a, a myriad of private payers and uh, others that are trying to figure out how this model or this type of model, it's not a single model, uh, might work. And looking at large groups, small groups, uh, hospital-based, non-hospital-based, IPA-based, uh, sort of your clinically integrated IPA models, a lot of demos going on. So in answer to your question, this goes far beyond internal medicine and oncology uh, and your typical Medicare uh, physician providers, if you will. Uh, another thing to be aware of is it's not the only game in town. You know, your bundled payment demonstration projects, uh, your acute care episode demonstration project, which is the bundled care payment project ongoing with orthopedic CV surgery and interventional cardiology is ahead of the curve timeline, or the timeline curve, excuse me, with uh, the law, and actually started before uh, the health care bill became law. And so there are other pieces that will be sort of simultaneously evaluated. Uh, so whatever specialty you may be in, um, whether it's a true accountable care organization or not, one of these new payment reforms is certainly going to affect you. So if, if I'm a doc, primary or otherwise, with or without a Medicare load per se, and I've participated, you know, in an IPA uh you know, maybe discounted fee-for-service, uh, IPA with or without a withhold, or I've participated in a PHO or something like that. Uh, is this just another kind of ho-hum, here-we-go-again phenomena, or is this going to be a different experience? Well, I think, like I said, it's going to be evolutionary. I don't think it's going to be a ho-hum, here-we-go-again experience, because I don't think this one is going to go away anytime soon. Uh, there's simply too much risk to not change, and I think we all know that. So I think you're going to start to see these shared savings type of models begin to be, right now it's sort of dancing around the fringes for for the reason that we don't have legal waiver from the OIG. And I was recently at the uh, one of the physician hospital meetings for the American Health Lawyer Associations around healthcare reform. I spoke up there, and the, the hue and cry to a person was, we need to have a waiver of some sort from you know, the fraud and abuse law, the Stark, uh, the Stark law, et cetera, so that we can do some of these things that shared savings needs us to do. When, when you look at some of the demonstration projects that are working, uh, the, the ACE that I mentioned, the, the PGP pro, or project that, uh, the physician group project that uh, CMS recently 
uh, undertook where they showed um, if you incentivize physicians to share car or to cut costs and to improve quality together, it works. Uh, have shown that if we can get away from some of the uh, existing language around gain sharing and the like and provide appropriate waivers and appropriate guidance that avoid self-referral but at the same time allows shared savings, we're going to make some significant progress. So I think what you're going to see, Greg, is a buildup of these models that are testing this and the momentum seems to be going towards once we've got enough data that shows that, yeah, this is really working, it will likely push some of these waivers that are necessary to make these things happen under the under the law. And I think you're then going to see a huge movement towards it. And the, the information that I, or the advice that I'm providing to our clients is you don't want to be last. You don't want to not be ready. So even though you can't do some of the things around gain sharing and the like now under current law, you want to be prepared through your integration strategy, through your IT strategy, through uh, having the right physician and hospital partners, through getting all the – you want to get all the details worked out now so that when the laws do get modified, and as they do get modified, you can take maximum advantage of it. So one interpretation here for clinicians, docs uh, in particular, who may not be sanguine in, in, in um, health policy wonk rhetoric and terms, <laughs> gain sharing, <laughs> upside, all that kind of stuff, sure. um, is, is – um, um, is the basic argument, if you could sort of net it down to its fundamentals, is, hey, everyone's going to earn less in the future. You guys have been riding high on the hog with fee-for-service, perhaps living on inflated incomes. The only way to sustain your um, lifestyle is get involved with these organizations and assure there's some savings to distribute on the back end that right. in the aggregate bring you up to what you're historically used to in terms of earnings. Is that a I would agree with you with one caveat. And if you go back to Dr. Fisher's original paper, and there is an article that the Commonwealth Fund wrote about his paper that I thought was an excellent article years ago, and 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 they really boiled it down to at the end of the day, in our current system, there are too many providers doing too many things. So not every provider is going to get to do everything anymore under this current system, So, or excuse me, under, under this proposed new system. And that's a little scary thing to say, and I always get kind of an interesting reaction when I do this live and say that, but I really believe that to be true, that those providers that can objectively demonstrate quality, not only absolutely, but relatively, in other words, you don't only have to do things well, you have to do them better than other people, are going to be the ones who get to continue to play in this environment and then will survive under the, the, the scenario that you described. So uh, the pie is going to shrink. The, the pie has to shrink. But I don't believe everybody's pie is going to shrink proportionally, if you know what I mean. Some people's pie will go away altogether and they just won't get a piece. And that sounds somewhat draconian, and some some would say that's a little far out there. But when you really look at how this is designed to ultimately end up, and this may not be next year or the year after, but you are going to have to be able to demonstrate your quality over and above your peers. Uh, you and I were talking earlier about the Physician Compare website that's now live, and although it doesn't have a lot of data in it now, it's poised to have significant data that may or may not represent true quality. We can have that debate. 
but the machinations are already there and they're already beginning. So right. I think you're right. The the pie will the pie will certainly get smaller. If you want to survive, you're going to have to play under these new set of rules. And if you don't change, you're certainly at greater risk for not being able to play at all. Do you think this will, again, trying to look at it from a granular perspective of uh, um, the typical solo or small practice physician, uh, do you think this will resurrect uh, IPAs, particularly subspecialty IPAs that might sort of aggregate under maybe a, a super primary care IPA that configures that that goes out as an a, collectively as an ACO? Do you think that'll stimulate some of these dormant entities from the nineties? Yeah, I, we're already beginning to see it. Not only stimulate some of the dormant entities, but the creation of new ones and the dusting off of of uh, old legal structures, et cetera. Yeah, I, I do think you're going to see some of that because under the law, you don't have to have a hospital as part of an ACO. Now, functionally, in order to manage care across what I like to call the readmission cycle, you obviously have to have a hospital partner if you're a large group of physicians. But there are many physician groups around the country that are forming the ACOs and then will, will choose their partner, if you will, with certain hospitals, they, they with a much more physician-led focus on the integration strategy, as opposed to what we've seen in the, in the late early, early 90s, and even some of what we're seeing now, that the integration strategies are being led in large part by the hospitals. And the, I don't like the word acquisition, but that's the best word to describe it, but the acquisition of physician and practices across the country is, is obviously becoming a hot topic once again. So I think you're going to see that as a strategy. I don't think it's necessarily going to be the only strategy. I think I'd broaden it a little bit, Greg, and say that every physician and every hospital is going to be involved with some type of integration strategy. I honestly don't believe there'll be a physician or hospital that's not aligned with some type of health system or hospital by the end of the next decade. And that doesn't mean employed by but aligned with in some way, shape, or form to take advantage of whatever regional, federal, local, state opportunities that this uh, beast may, may, or the form this beast may take. Yeah, um, <laughs> health leaders did a, uh, back in September, they issued a, a pretty good report, and the, there's a section in there, Uncertainty on the Journey to Hospital Physician Alignment. The analysis is passionate yet contrasting voices emerge from healthcare leaders over the impact of reform as primary care physicians are sought for employment and specialists flood hospitals and health systems with physician requests. This is unfolding against a backdrop of reduced reimbursements, setting the stage for an uncertain future. Are you experiencing a lot of, uh, oh, there's also an article today, uh, this week, uh, physicians selling practices to hospitals again. So is yes. this being stimulated by this, uh, by this ACO? Boy, we're seeing it all over the place. I mean, there, I, I spoke to some folks from the American College of Cardiology, and, and we do a lot of work in the world of cardiology, and the number that I heard, and it's almost unbelievable to say it out loud, but I did hear it from, from them, was that, or from a, a person who works directly with them, that, uh, 90% of cardiologists either are employed or looking to be employed by a hospital or health system within the next 12 months. Now, three to five years ago, we, would, we wouldn't have dreamt that would have happened. 
we, we saw it beginning to happen, but it, it was a real tsunami. And we're beginning to see it specialty by specialty. Obviously, there's a set of circumstances around mm-hmm. cardiology, particularly interventional cardiology, and the declining reimbursements that's driving a lot of that. But we're not seeing it only in cardiology. We're seeing it in, in specialties we don't traditionally see. Obviously, you see the primary care push uh, based around the, the ACO structure and hospitalists and those type of specialties, but seeing it in, in orthopedics, seeing it in radiology, seeing it in, in specialties that traditionally have been more independent from hospital partners. Uh, so I think you are going to continue to see uh, employment alignment strategies, integration strategies of of a myriad of flavors, and some we probably haven't even tried yet uh, as we continue to go down this road. You know, there's a couple of things that, that are core no matter what the end game is, I think, Greg. And whether it's an ACO or whatever the new care model ends up being, um, you've got to have demonstrably high quality. You've got to have demonstrably lower cost, and you've got to have the right partners, whether that's your physician partners, your hospital partners, your uh, other providers of care outside of the hospital and, and office setting with rehab, home health, hospice, whatever. This is managing of a continuum. You have to start thinking of things in a much different way than episodic care. Uh, and you've got to have those components if you're going to make this work successfully. Well, do you think that's possible in the time frame that we're looking at now? You know, I, I think no. The short answer is no. It'll be the only short answer I give you today. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the long answer, the corollary to my short answer is, you know, the law requires that uh, October, or is it January 1st, 2012, sorry, January 1st, 2012, you've got to have uh, an ACO shall exist. That's ACO model shall exist. That's what the law says. Uh, and and a, a pediatric ACO demo happens at the same time frame. So there will be something that exists. Will it be a fully integrated, up and running, data sharing, care improving ACO? I don't believe that it will. I believe what you will see will be you know, maybe the equivalent of the Fred Flintstone car with the rock wheels and Fred's feet pedaling on the dust <laughs> and calling it, you know, a Jaguar maybe. Um, I think we're going to be, you know, five, ten years away from really fully integrated streamlined systems. Right. And, and even those systems that you look at the the models that get thrown out there, the Geisingers, the Cleveland Clinics, the Mayos of the world, um, the limitations around data and data sharing outside of their walls are going to limit their effectiveness as an ACO as long as it is not an entirely closed and captive patient population. And that's that's part of the enormous debate. How do we attribute patients to these organizations to make them work? And if I can't attribute that patient entirely to an organization that I can control and the patient has the ability to go do what they'd like, how can I be held accountable for that? So, you know, recognizing that need that there's no single footprint, no single template that's going to be be a cookie-cutter solution in market after market after market, they intentionally wrote this law with rather broad-brush framework, and then it's up to, you know, sort of local flavoring to sort of connect the dots. And as you say, a lot of discretion accorded to the secretary and so forth in deeming eligibility for consideration. But... Here, here we are on uh, – the, there was an article posted uh, this week in um, Hospital and Health Networks 
uh, Chasing Unicorns, the Future of ACOs, and, and the tag by Ian Morrison. We re republished it on ACOWatch.com. The accountable care organization is like a unicorn, a, fast, a fantastic creature that is vested with mythical powers, but no one has actually seen one. You know, Perfect. So tongue-in-cheek, there's a lot of skepticism about it, but truthfully, there's an awful lot of upside and innovation opportunity here. And I, I, my sense is, you know, if the private market can't finally figure it out how to somehow make it work this time, then I think we're going to see government-controlled health care in our not-too-distant future. What do you think? I think, uh, I think you're going to see increasing government control. I don't know that we'll get entirely to a single-payer system, uh, but I do think that, as you and I have spoken about before, the the, the law is moving along. Even, even though there are many, many pieces of it that aren't implemented, there are many that are, and I do think if you don't move, you're going to get run over by CMS implementing the law. I do believe that. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. And we've only scratched the surface there. There's so much to talk. I want to put a, a shout-out out to anyone who may have, be listening live or downstream, either from Monarch Healthcare or Healthcare Partners or Advocate, you know, some of the out-of-the-traditional mode of the mature integrated delivery systems like Kaiser, uh, uh, Mayo, et cetera, who want to talk about their models because I think there's some awesome things going on out there and we want to learn. We could parse this out each week just taking a single aspect of, of what it is about an HCO from legal to clinical to you name it, infrastructure, et cetera. But this is all we have for today. We've got 30 seconds left, so I want to thank you very much. For your, My pleasure. your participation today. Glad we got to you. Hope we can call you back. Always. And uh, we, uh, uh, I would like to uh, uh, call attention to my co-host and guest next week, which is Mike Melanson, who will be talking about some of the quality issues associated with the uh, ACEA tsunami. So thanks again for listening. Thanks again, Dr. Brown. Thank you, Craig. See you, see you next week.